This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Thank you for joining the Financial Standard podcast. I'm Cassandra Baldini. Today, I'm joined by Alan's partner and Quality Advice Review Chair, Michelle Levy. Michelle, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you, Cassandra. It's good to be here. No doubt it's been a very big year for you since you were appointed as a review overseer in March. At that time, the feedback was varied, um, with a few in the industry questioning if the review should be conducted by someone with a bit more experience within the financial advice community. Can you tell me what that was like for you and how it felt being selected and then, of course, facing that backlash? Well, I wasn't rightly or wrongly too worried about the backlash in so far as the review is about recommending changes to the law. So it is looking at the regulatory framework. It was therefore always going to be done best, I think, by a lawyer. And I am intimately familiar with the um, law that applies to the provision of financial advice. So I didn't feel like I was unqualified to take on the role. I have acted for um, dealer groups and their advisors. I've acted for financial institutions over decades. And so I felt that I had a reasonably good understanding of their business and I know that I have and had a really, really great understanding of the law. So I was excited in terms of how did I felt, feel excited and not too concerned by the backlash. And just for clarity, how many people are involved in the review? I know, I know you're, you're the face of it, but who's in that back-end yeah. process? So there's a team from Treasury, a secretariat, who is, which is headed by um, an executive um, from the Treasury uh, and then... She has two deputies and then there's a team of about um, another eight or so people and they have um, mixed backgrounds. They're a couple of lawyers, a couple of economists. Um, There's a a former financial advisor in the team. So a great bunch of people really with knowledge and expertise. Because some of the commentary that we've definitely been seeing is that there um, isn't a financial advisor involved in that sort of panel, but there is a former financial advisor. There is. uh, There's also people who have come out of the private sector in different parts of the industry in the team. So I think we do get it. We've also done the team has done site visits with advisors Um, we have done a survey of advisors and we have met with dozens and dozens and dozens of advisors and their representative associations. Of course, the consultation process is you've got, you know, your advisors are at the, I guess, you know, the key to that part. But it was more that discussion around someone being on the inside um, and being involved in that panel from, from that side, the back end side. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for clearing that up. The financial advisors are providing advice 
But my role is to work out how we can make advice more accessible and affordable. So my focus isn't on the advisors, it is on the consumers. As, and so I think that's something that um, I encourage your listeners to really keep in mind that to the extent that they are assisted by this and my recommendations, that's because they can provide advice to the community. Right. It's not the other way around. It's like it's community-led. You know, just sort of going off onto those proposals um, that came out in August, um, your draft proposal, they caused a bit of a stir within the industry. What um, what would you say sort of caused the biggest amount of debate um, when they came out? And has that settled down now since it's been, you know, a few months? Has it sort of calmed down or is there still some active debate around, you know, some particular areas? Well, it depends who you are listening to and speaking to from financial advisors. The, I think one of the biggest concerns was opening up the provision of financial advice or financial product advice to people other than financial advisors and a concern that um, it was really an uneven playing field that people who were not financial advisors with all of their skill and expertise um, would be able to give financial product advice. So I think that was the um, main concern and continues to be the main concern from financial advisors. I am mindful of that. I don't, um, I suppose I, again, I come back to what is my job. My job is to help get more advice to consumers, good advice. Uh, I don't think that it's possible for the 16,000 financial advisors that there are today and hopefully that number will grow. But even then, it's not going to be possible for them to provide all of the advice or to meet all of the advice needs of the Australian community. And so we do need to open it up. Listening to advisors, it seems to me that they are they want to have ongoing relationships with clients. Um, they, and so that is not the incidental advice that would be given by people who are not relevant, who are not financial advisors. So I would say to the industry, it's not about doing something that is good for you, but it is good for you. Embrace it. And that's, again, that's been called um, problematic, unlicensed providers being able to provide advice. And at the AFA Thrive Conference, you explain that a person who's giving advice but is not being paid for it, such as an employee of the bank, insurer and or superannuation fund, is not a relevant, a relevant provider. So, you know, to those who say that it will impact the quality of advice and diminish industry standards, like, what do you say to that? I don't think so. So, the what I am proposing is that the, where advice is being given by somebody who is not a relevant provider, the person with responsibility and the person with the obligation to give the advice and to give good advice will be the institution. And so it will be for the, the bank, the superannuation fund, the insurer, um, it will be that 
entity's obligation to work out what advice can I safely give to my customers without a relevant provider. And so I think that naturally will lead to fairly limited scope, simple advice. Now, rather than saying that in the law that you must only give limited scope simple advice I think you get there in a different way by saying what is it that I can control as an entity um, and what is it that I can't and where I can't and need to give discretion to the provider then I'll need to employ a person who I can trust and trust with discretion and judgment. And that's where the financial advisor would come in. And, and how will that be measured in terms of, you know, will that be up to the, in, you know, the various, um, you know, industry uh, sectors, you know, bank superannuation funds, will that be sort of an in-house decision or will there be like a standardised process in terms of this is what irrelevant providers can advise on and this is what they can't? No, it will be left up to them. And the reason is that I think it is too hard to provide a list of prescribed things or subject matter on which you can give advice because things that might be simple um, for some clients or customers won't be simple mm. for other customers. I think that it also depends on your technology so to what extent is advice, in fact, being given by, a, you know, an algorithm or a digital advice provider rather than the individual? So I think it, it really becomes a question for the provider, the institution, to say, how can I satisfy myself that any advice that my staff give is good advice? And I, you know, I guess because the industry has professionalised over, you know, the last decade, um, it's gone through huge amounts of transitions. Those advisors in the industry now feel like that there is a certain standard to uphold. And I guess they're concerned that standard will slip if it is the gates are opened. I understand. I do understand. I am not, I don't think that they are competing other than around the edges because there is no reason to think that a financial institution, a product issuer, would be in the business of giving comprehensive financial advice to their customers for no charge. Yeah. Now, they will do it when they are distributing their own products, um, but it, there are laws that say you can't get conflicted remuneration, so they can't be paid for distributing somebody else's products. There are laws about acting efficiently, honestly and fairly, and I am proposing a good advice duty. So I don't think that, I don't see financial advisors competing with the institutions. I think they're occupying different worlds and serving different needs. I guess just going um, on that good advice, Judy, that's something else that mm. sparked some debate. Mm. What is good advice and do you think good is the best we can do? I think good's pretty good. I mean, like, good isn't okay. Good isn't mediocre. It's, it actually means what it says in my um, when I use it. I don't think we can 
prescribe best advice. Only one person can give the best advice. Um, I wouldn't, as a solicitor, want to be bound by that obligation. So good advice is going to be measured by reference to what the client wants and what they are asking for. So if I um, want you know, I don't, I'm trying to think what the example might be, but if let's say I want to buy um, some life insurance and I ask the insurer, let's say I go to the insurer and I say I need life insurance, um, I would expect the person in the insurer to ask some questions about what they need. Uh, let's assume that the person has a pre-existing condition and that's excluded, then the person could not be sold a life insurance policy. It would not be good advice. Now, if it meets all of the needs but it is slightly more expensive than the policy that is issued by a competitor life company, then it's possible that there could be good advice. It depends on what the person's asking about. If they say I want the cheapest on the market, you couldn't. Give, that would not be good advice. So I guess what's that difference between the best advice and good advice? You know, how, how do you sort of see the two? Um... So there is no duty to give the best advice in the law at the moment. And I don't know anyone that is held to a standard of best advice. It's going to be a case by case, I guess. And, you know, as you said, you think good is pretty good and acceptable well I think it's it's more than acceptable and it is measured by what the client needs and wants and fit for purpose is the kind of language that perhaps people can be thinking about is it fit for purpose and has that been received well by advisors or the industry alike I mean the precise formulation is hasn't been shared with people and I'm still looking at it. Um, I think so. I, I would, I'm not sure why it wouldn't be is really what I would say. I think we've got a law at the moment that says you must give advice that is in the best interests of your client. Yep. That obligation doesn't look at the content of the advice. It looks at the processes that go into the provision of advice and the um, proposition is that if you follow those processes, the advice that is provided is good for the client. I'm just saying let's cut to the chase and say you have an obligation to give advice that is good for your client. I guess we'll, uh, you know, await the more on that formulation. Mm. Yes. Um, and that that will be something that sort of will be outlined, I guess, you know, in the um, in December. It will be, yes. Well, just moving moving along then to statement of advice, have you received any feedback um, on that proposal that, you know, was out of the ordinary? Uh, so the proposal was that we um, have no statements of advice, that people have to um, maintain a record themselves, mm-hmm. which could be um, a recording where advice is given over the telephone. Um, I know that... Um, you know, the FPA has been considering, you know, visual statements of advice could be that um, or it could be a file note, contemporaneous file note. 
Uh, and then the other proposal is that if the um, person, the client asks for written advice, then you have to give a written advice. Right. So, or a record of what you have advised. But in the absence of that, it, advice should be given in the way that the advisor thinks will suit the needs of their client. So in many cases, that will mean a document, but not always. And again, if we think about the relationship of an advisor and their client and the ones that I understand that most advisors want are those that are continuing um, long-standing relationships. In those cases, I might think that the client might well want a written document. It might even look a bit like a statement of advice today when they first go to see the advisor, but they may have questions throughout the year or between visits and they will want to ring their advisor and ask questions. And so in that case, it may be entirely appropriate and exactly what the client and the advisor want to just have a a telephone call. It could be followed up by an email or it could just be a file note written by the advisor and kept on their record. So uh, again, it's a, I think the proposal is that advisors and the providers of advice be free to work out with their client how that advice should be given. Um, people have raised whether people should have shorter forms of statements of advice. My concern with recommending that statements of advice just be shorter, is that people have been saying that for a long time. The regulator, ASIC, keeps saying make them shorter, make them shorter. Licensees say make them shorter, I think, some of them. Um, Advisors say they want to make them shorter. Lawyers even, I know lawyers are often blamed for the length, but I've been looking at them for a long time too and I say make them shorter. But for whatever reason, people do not. That's that's really interesting. do you think a majority of those in the industry will see the removal of the SOAs as a positive thing that will, you know, essentially add to, you know, the functionality of their advice practice? I think so. I think most people have been reasonably um, pleased. No one wanted a statement of advice to continue as they were. Uh, And so then people had different views about what they should look like. And this allows them to decide for themselves what any sort of documented advice should look like. I guess, um, do you foresee any sort of issue, say an advisor decides not to provide a statement of advice, could that in some way come back to entangle the client or the advisor, do you think? So, uh, as I said, you would have to keep a record of the advice that you have given. The advice is itself quite simple. It usually, sorry, the advice, if you look at the law, is really the recommendation. It's not all of the supporting mm. material. So that becomes a question for the advisor or the provider of advice, how much they want to document that they have taken into account to um, support their advice. Now, I suppose if you're thinking about a complaint, um, if you were an advisor bringing, sorry, a client taking a complaint to AFCA and there is no um, written document, there's um, a question about um, proving your case. So um, persuading AFCA of the merits of your case. Now, on one view, the what you've done would provide evidence of what might provide some evidence. So if you have made, you've gone to see an advisor 
you've made an investment, say, um, following that meeting. If you are then unhappy and wanted to go to AFCA, then you would say that I was recommended to invest in this. I did. It was terrible advice. It then becomes a question for the advisor to say, well, no, here's my record. They would produce it to AFCA and they would say, this is what I've said. This is why I say it's sound advice. Now, it's possible that the, um, the client could say, well, that's not true. But they do that today. Mm-hmm. This is, I have um, done a lot of work on Africa complaints leading up prior to my appointment and statements of advice are produced and the clients just say, well, that wasn't the advice. And then you look at the statements of advice and it's not hard to believe because they're often templates uh, and they are not necessarily an obvious match (laughs) to what's happened. And so AFCA will look at file notes. AFCA isn't going to be completely persuaded or even persuaded by the statement of advice. So this is something that is an issue now. I guess another thing to consider there is just curiously, if um, if there is some, if if realistically an advisor does need to keep a, a you know a, a form of statement of advice, let's say a record of advice or whatever the new terminology will be, is the removal of the statement of advice going to really cause a, a big impact? Considering that back end work will still need to to realistically be done, I guess it's just that removal of that legislative requirement or removal of it being called the statement of advice, but essentially there will still need to be that back-end work. There will need to be back-end yeah. work. I think it will, well, I've been told that the creation of the formal document is of itself expensive. Um, I know that as a lawyer I can give verbal advice, but writing it down sure. even identically is a lot of work. Um And the more tailored and specific it is and therefore the more relevant it is, the more work it is. So I do think it will take away um, some perhaps material costs in the system. It also, again, there's a whole lot of incidental advice that at the moment needs to be also included in a statement of advice or a record of advice, either of which has to be given to the client. That will go. So... I think I see the most benefit in that, not in I expect, as you, I think, are suggesting that the first visit or the annual visit or whatever it is will still have a document. Advice will still be written and the person will still get it in a very similar way to the way they do now. I hope they will be better, more tailored documents, but they'll still get it. But it's all of that stuff along the way. It's calls that you won't need to have a written document for it's the email the email is its own document yeah that it's again it's just a simplified version I guess is what you're saying um well yeah but can I give an example of sure the one that people use all of the time the magic ten thousand dollars that everybody's grandchild is being left (laughs) and they have ten thousand dollars and they want to know what to do with it and that the you know 
financial advisors, clients, child or something. You know, usually it's that kind of thing. They're not they're not a um, client of the advisor in the main and they're never going to, well, they might be one day, but they're not now. Sure. The advisor wants to give some helpful advice. So $10,000, what do I do with it? So the advisor is going to get on the phone to the person probably and they'll ask them a few questions and they'll say, well, are you saving for a house? Do you have a debt? Whatever. And the person will say, yeah, I'm saving for a house, let's say. And the, the advisor might say, well, you know, the best thing to do at the moment or the safest is to open a term deposit. Now, that's financial product advice, personal advice. They could just send an email saying, mm. you know, Dick you've told me blah, blah, blah. I think the best thing you could do right now is just open a term deposit while you're thinking or whatever. Yeah. Now, you don't have to do any more work than that. And that's the that's the record of advice right there. That's it. Wow, okay. And the person's using their knowledge and skill without having to go away and do a whole lot of work. Moving on to superannuation, you've proposed mm. amending the sole purpose test and said it's yes. not clear that trustees are permitted to apply fund assets to meet the cost of providing personal advice. AIST, for one, has said your reading of that legislation is surprising given other areas of the CIS Act assume trustees can provide advice. Can you provide more colour around why you think it needs amending and any other feedback you've received from industry? I think that the provisions that the AIST refers to have been added a long time after the sole purpose test the um, Act has evolved over uh, since 1993. So the sole purpose test was there. People did not use superannuation fund assets to pay for advice at that time. Over the years, I think the at one point was a circular that as APRA released that said assets could be used to pay um, for advice, and that was produced as almost like an exception to the sole purpose test. So there was a view a long time ago that the sole purpose test needed to be amended in order to use fund assets to pay for advice. The current system whereby funds apply fund assets to pay for advice has come out of that and paying paying for commissions for the distribution of financial of superannuation accounts in the retail sector. So there's no reason to think anyone actually turned their mind to applying fund assets to pay for advice when the sole purpose test was written. You then get actually decades on FOFA and the whole arrangement for ongoing advice fees and so at that point the Act is amended in various ways to um, allow, well, sorry, I wouldn't even say to allow on the basis that it is allowed, but they never go back to that fundamental question, is it permitted? So I think that we have something that is rather unsoundly unbased at the moment and I'm just suggesting of really let's put it on a firmer footing 
The Australian Law Reform Commission is also currently reviewing financial services law and its complexity. Have you been engaged with the ALRC at all in regards to that or your own work? Yes, yes. I've spoken with them a couple of times. I mean, we're doing different things. There is an overlap, it's true, but they are not um, looking at law reform. So I am looking at law reform and the Law Reform Commission <laughs> is actually looking at restating in a simpler way the existing law. And can you give us any clues to how those two are aligning or where they're aligning? Well, in terms of simplicity, I think we both are um, keen to make the law much simpler, more principles-based. The final proposals are expected to be released on December 16th. How are you tracking towards Mm. that date? Um, I am madly drafting and um, feeling sick about the time frame. (laughs) But we're tracking. We're going, we're doing it. Do you think that what you've come up with so far is really enough to revitalise the advice industry and make advice more accessible and affordable? I really do. This could be, it could make such a huge difference. So you feel pretty confident that it is going to be received positively by the industry? No, I worry about self-interest a lot. Um, I would encourage advisors to think first about consumers and then I would say to them, look at all of the advantages this promises to your business personally. So that's a happy kind of outworking of what I'm trying to do. But it, it, this is really great for advisors. But more importantly, it's a really good, it, it promises a much better outcome for consumers. Do you think that we'll um, have that paper ready to read on the 16th? You'll have to ask the minister that question. I don't know. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for your time today and joining us. I'm sure there are plenty of advisors out there for whom you've answered a couple of burning questions. So thank you for your time. No worries at all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice. 